So as we come back to really this topic of spiritual warfare, we now get into the actual elements of armor. And before we go into our passage this morning, because our passage is going to be about truth, I want you to just look and consider your own lives and think about how important truth is in your own lives. Just like if you're down in the southeast, now you know it's hurricane season, we've had hurricanes coming up through the Midwest and through the East Coast, the truth of hurricanes is going to inform how you are going to prepare for those conditions there to come. And so truth is a very important part of how we operate. We operate on truth. We make decisions based upon truth. And in areas where we're not sure what the truth is, we seek to understand what is true. When you go to the doctor's office, when you get looked at by your physician, if you have certain illnesses, if you have certain physical conditions, but you don't know what the source is, you don't want to be with a doctor that's going to sit there and just try to guess what might be causing your struggle. You would prefer a doctor who can look at you, do some examinations, understand from your symptoms, and be able to tell you with precision what your illness is. Now, obviously, that's not always possible. The human body is so complex, but certainly the more knowledgeable a doctor is, the more likely we are to get a diagnosis that is helpful to us, that is actually based upon truth. And it is no different with the Christian life. Truth is at the foundation of everything we do. And truth comes to us by the way of Scripture. I probably hammer on that point every single week, and it's probably because it is worth hammering every single week. If you want to know the truth, you need to be able to come to Scripture. And even as we look around the world and we see the way the world is behaving, we see the things that the world is doing, the way it's responding to news and events, and we scratch our head and think to ourselves, this is so illogical how they're behaving. This is completely irrational, the things that people are doing, the way the truth is being presented. But brothers and sisters, let me remind you that ultimately, the real truth of our life, the real truth of our existence, the real truth of the future, the real truth of our need, the real truth of how that need is met, comes to us by Scripture. And so in many ways, while we look at the world and we can see that the people in the world, the ones who are looting and rioting and complaining and screaming and yelling, we can look at them and say, these folks are delusional. But by definition, those of us, those of you who do not know the Lord, those of you who do not know the Word, those of you who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, are in a very similar way delusional. You do not see reality for what it really is. And so truth is at the foundation of everything we do. And so as we go to the scriptures, as we take a look at our passage for this morning, our message this morning is the armor of God part four. And what we're going to be looking at is what does it mean to gird up our loins with truth? So my purpose is for us to be convicted of the foundational importance behind girding up our loins with truth that we will see in chapter 6, verse 14 of the book of Ephesians. And in my outline, we're going to examine the idea of girding up your loins with truth in four different ways. And so as we consider the spiritual warfare, this is the passage, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 13, that we have covered the last three weeks. 
and we'll read through that again in just a moment, but this is just to break it out into an outline format so that you understand how all these passages fit together. From Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 13, we saw the call to battle, the call to battle. And in verse 10, when it says to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, I would argue that verse 10 is the overarching command that covers this entire section on spiritual warfare. It's to be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And then in verse 11, we saw how we were supposed to do that, which is to put on the full armor of God. And then we learned the enemies that we must stand against, the spiritual enemies, at the second half of verse 11 through verse 12. And then in verse 13, we saw this renewed call to stand firm, to put on your armor and stand firm. But as we get into the next few verses, and really from verse 14 all the way to 20, first in verses 14 to 17, we have the definition of that armor. You see, the way that we are strengthened in the Lord is to put on the armor of God. And from verses 14 to 17, Paul is now going to detail what that armor of God is. And remember the spiritual warfare for each one of us who are Christians. You engage the spiritual warfare by what you know. You engage with your mind. Because our struggle is not against flesh and spirit. I mean flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but our struggle is spiritual. It is against these spirits. It's against Satan. It's against the powers and the rulers and the spiritual forces. And the way we engage in that spiritual warfare is to recognize that the attack comes through our mind. Satan and the demon realm attack us through our mind and makes us or tries to force us or influence us to believe something that is not true. And then once we get beyond verses 14 to 17, verses 18 to 20 is going to talk about the necessity of prayer, the necessity of prayer. But let's go ahead and read through our passage, and we're going to review the passages that we had looked at the last three weeks, starting in chapter 6, verse 10. And verse 10, I said, is the overarching command that covers all the spiritual warfare from verses 10 to 20. Verse 10 reads, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And just a reminder, the word finally shows that this is a culmination of everything that Paul has written in the book of Ephesians. And verse 11, we see, put on the full armor of God. And the purpose is that so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And we did spend an entire sermon just talking about the schemes of the devil. And then verse 12, we see that truth that for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And then when we get to verse 13, this is the renewed call to stand firm, and it's going to transition into the actual elements of armor that we're going to look at. Verse 13, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And right there at the end of that verse, verse 13, we see Paul's emphasis that you are to do everything in order to be able to stand firm against the attacks of Satan and the demonic realm. And so then that brings us into our passage for this morning, but let's go ahead and read verses 14 through 17, all the armor of God. Verse 14 says, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, 
and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so we'll be looking first at verse 14 and the four ways, remember what I'm going to do this morning is we're going to examine the idea of girding your loins with truth and we're going to do that in four ways. And first is to just understand this phrase, what does it mean to gird up our loins with truth? Well, as we take a look at this passage and I have the entire passage verses 14 to 17 there in front of us, I you'll see that I put numbers through these verses because what I want to show you is that the full armor of God, Paul identifies six pieces of that armor. Six pieces of that armor. So when he starts in verse 14 by say, saying, stand firm, therefore, you are to stand firm having done all of these things, having equipped all of these items. And the first one is to gird your loins with truth. The second is the breastplate of righteousness. The third is that you're shodding your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The fourth is the shield of faith. And the fifth one is the helmet of salvation. And the sixth one is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, as we think about each of those armor elements individually, consider Paul's situation when he's writing this letter. Whenever you're doing Bible study, whenever you're trying to understand the intent of the author, and of course, we know that the author is ultimately God, but God uses human instruments and their intent in order to accomplish his purpose. So we think about Paul and his situation. He is actually imprisoned in Rome when he writes this letter to the church in Ephesus. And you'll see a couple of references of that as you read through Ephesus about him being imprisoned. And so he is imprisoned, and while he is imprisoned, he is being watched over by Roman guards. And very likely, as he's writing this letter, he might even be looking directly at a Roman guard, looking at all the equipment that that soldier has on him, and using that as an illustration for the spiritual armor that we must put on. And then when we look at the order of the armor elements, look at the first three items. One is the girding of truth, sometimes called the belt of truth. The second is the breastplate of righteousness. The third is your feet being equipped with the gospel of peace. And I don't think that the order here is random. I believe that he is actually going in the order by which a soldier himself might actually equip himself. Because the first thing he'll do is to gird up his loins. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. And then he's got to put on his breastplate. The first three items are things that are fastened to him, are fastened to his body. And the third thing he's got to do is equip his feet. And then the last three things are really items that are more loose, things that you can put on when the battle is ready to go. Whether it's the shield of faith, that's something that's not fastened, but you pick up when the battle is coming. The helmet of salvation, you would typically put that on right before the battle. And the sword of the spirit is also an item that you would pick up. So there is an order to really this equipping. And the point that I'm getting at is just as he's looking at a soldier and looking at the order in which he would equip himself for battle, I believe the spiritual items that he is pointing to, the spiritual realities that he is pointing to, is likewise also following in order. And most foundational of all those items is truth. Because truth informs all the rest of the other items. And in fact, you will see that there is a lot of overlap between the first item and the very last item. The girding of truth as well as the sword of the Spirit. 
because we understand truth comes by God's word. But really, Paul's first focus is upon truth. And so when we take a look again at chapter 6, verse 14, we see him say, stand firm, therefore. And the word stand firm, this command to stand firm. Going back to verse 10, this is the third time that Paul mentions standing firm. And whenever you see the author repeating words or phrases multiple times, you need to pay attention because that is the emphasis that Paul has. That all these armor elements, all the pieces that we're looking at, is meant for us to stand firm against the attacks. We're not going on the offensive. You're never commanded to fight with Satan. You're never commanded to go out and exercise someone of demons. But rather, you are called to stand firm and to resist. And so here he is repeating that command, Stand firm, therefore. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Now, there are a few translations that call this the belt of truth. What we see here in the NASB version is more literal. It's to gird your loins with truth. And the question is, what does that mean? And so as we think about that verse, what does this phrase mean? When we think about a soldier, you have to first realize that most men in that time, their clothing, they wore long robes. They wore long robes that went down to their feet. Now, you can imagine that if you're going to go into battle and you're wearing long robes, you can see how that that would get in your way. And while men don't typically wear long robes today, even you ladies, when you wear long dresses, you understand how complicated things can get if you need to move around quite a bit. You want to make sure that dress doesn't get in your way. Similarly for a man, if he has long robes, he doesn't want those robes to get in his way, especially if he is going into combat. And so what they would do with the robes is they would actually pull them up and wrap them around their loin area. The loin area is referring to that area. It's your midsection beneath the ribs and above the pelvis. So they would pull up those robes and then wrap them around their waist and sometimes even use a belt to make sure those robes stay fastened. Now, why is that important? Well, for the man, as you can imagine, if he's going to battle, he needs to be freed. He needs to be freed up to be able to move freely without his robes impeding him, without them potentially tripping him, without the enemy being able to pull on them. And so this was very much about freedom, about making yourself mobile, that you can move about freely on the battlefield without being hindered. And so to gird up your loins with truth is very much a preparatory step for the soldier getting ready for battle. Now, what is the role of truth in this action? Because for us, our equipping is not physical. We're not going out into a physical battlefield. Though we can imagine today those who serve in the Army and the Navy and the Air Force and the Marines when they go overseas, just how much they have to be equipped and ready for battle. But for us, when Paul says, having girded your loins with truth, the idea is that you're freeing yourself. You're going to pull up your robes. You're going to gird your midsection with truth so that you will be free to move about. You will be unobstructed. You will not be hindered. You can't be tripped up. And he uses truth as the most foundational element here because truth is going to be your biggest asset. Truth is what's going to be your biggest ally in this spiritual war. Knowing what's true versus what is not true is going to be critical in your growth as a disciple of Christ. 
it is going to be critical in how you function in this spiritual war. And all of us are a part of this spiritual war. You engage in it every single day. I mean, think about Ephesians chapter 2 when Paul said, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you followed after the course of this world, after the prince of the power of the air. The idea is that this world operates according to Satan's schemes. Everything around this world is meant to trip you up mentally. It's meant to trip you up with regards to the realities, the truth that we see in Scripture. And so truth is very much important for us to be able to engage in spiritual warfare. Without the truth, you are absolutely useless. Without the truth, you will be absolutely tripped up. Without the truth, you will be obstructed. You will not be useful. You will not be effective. And it's not only Paul who gives us this idea of girding up with truth, but Peter actually gives us the same idea. In the letter of 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter actually says this, and if you were to read that letter, you will see that this is actually the very first commandment that he gives in the letter. Prior to verse 13, leading up to verse 13, he gives praise to God for our salvation. And then he reminds us that we can rejoice even in trials and tribulation because those trials are being used to refine our faith. And then he talks about the prophecies of the Old Testament and how the prophets of the Old Testament, they would search the scriptures trying to understand the time and the place in which the Christ would arrive. And then Peter makes the point that those Old Testament prophets that gave us these messianic prophecies were actually serving us. They were serving us. And so it leads into verse 13, Peter's very first command. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. And can I tell you that in the Greek, it is literally gird the loins of your mind. Because when we gird up our loins, it is not a physical action. It is mental. It is preparing our minds for truth, for action with truth. We are preparing our minds for the spiritual battle, and we were preparing it first with truth. And so this is a very, co very common concept throughout the scriptures. And we'll take a look at what Ephesians says about truth and then look at some of what the other scriptures say about truth. So let's look first at truth according to the book of Ephesians. Because if we're going to understand how we apply this to our life, if we're going to understand how we use this to gird up our loins and prepare for spiritual warfare, we want to first start by seeing how Paul used this word right in the book of Ephesus. And we see in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So here, Paul is using the word truth to describe the message that the people in Ephesus heard. He is using the word truth to describe the message that each and every one of you heard before you confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It is the message of truth, and he tells us specifically the gospel of your salvation. And when we think about gospel, what does the gospel tell us? Well, I share it every single week. It's this idea of the need that we have for Christ, that we are sinners that none of us had any power to justify ourselves before a holy God, that God in His perfect righteousness will deem everyone guilty because none of us have lived a life of holiness. None of us have lived up to the standard expected by a perfect and holy God. 
But we also understand that that is why God sent Jesus Christ into the world, right? Because none of us could be perfectly righteous on our own. He had to send his son, God in human flesh, to be perfect on our behalf. Jesus Christ lived out the commands of the Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Covenant, the Ten Commandments, and all that we find in those Mosaic books. He lived them out perfectly. And then he went to the cross in order to die for our sins. And when he died for our sins, at the end of his time on the cross, he uttered the words, it is finished. And that marked the finishing of his payment required for our sins and the sins for everyone who would put their faith into God and Jesus Christ. And so this message of truth, the gospel of our salvation, is a reminder of the reality of how much we needed Jesus Christ, the reality of God's love expressed by sending Jesus Christ into the world, the reality of Jesus Christ living the perfect life, going to the cross, and going to the cross for a specific purpose, to die on the cross and by His blood to be able to pay for our sins, past, present, and future, hallelujah, that we have that salvation, we have that promise. And so Paul here uses truth to describe the very message, and it's the same message that each and every one of you should be sharing whenever you get opportunities with unbelievers. That this world, the people who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, they need the truth. They need the truth. And then we go to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, and we're going to look at this in more depth later. But 14, verse 14 says, as a result, and the prior verses he talked about how we're all being equipped for service to one another. Verse 14, he says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. And in that verse, verse 14, we already see that the truth will help you to be able to discern what is not true. The truth will help you to be able to discern what is not true. You know, on the battlefield, when you get strategists on both sides, a lot of battle is trying to deceive the opponents, trying to think you're going to attack from one direction and instead attacking where they don't expect you to attack. It's trying to deceive your opponent so that you can have the advantage. And make no mistake that Satan and his demons are doing the same thing in spiritual warfare. He is working every angle in order for you to believe what is not true. And so we see here that part of the truth is preparing us to be able to stand firm against every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. And rather than being tossed to and fro by those waves. Verse 15, this is what we are to do. We are to speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. And so when we speak, when we talk to each other, we are to speak truth to one another. And not just any truth, but specifically God's truth. And we're going to take a look at some worldly examples of how we can be turned away from God's truth. And then in the same chapter, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says this, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. Remember this verse? Walk not like the world. That was the name of the message. So that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk. And how do the Gentiles walk? In the futility of their what? Mind. In the futility of their mind. 
Non-believers are delusional because they don't know what is true. And prior to knowing Christ, we also walked, meaning, and when I say walk, I don't mean literally walk, I mean we lived our life, we behaved, we conducted ourselves according to the futility of our mind. And verse 18, he goes on to say, being darkened in their understanding, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Ignorance, lack of knowledge. That's literally what ignorance is. It's a lack of knowledge because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But look at what Paul says in verse 20. But you did not learn Christ in this way. You did not learn Christ in this way, verse 21, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. So I love how Paul tells us as Christians, this is not how we learned Christ. And we know that truth is in Christ. And to learn Christ, to learn the truth in Christ should inform how we behave, how we operate in this world. Verse 22, with regards to this truth, he says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Deceit is to throw you off of truth. And so Paul is saying that we learn Christ, that our life is about laying aside the old self, laying aside the ways that we used to operate. And instead, verse 23, that we be renewed in the spirit of the mind. In the spirit of your mind, in verse 24, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So truth is the foundation by which we live our lives. Verse 25, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And while this certainly holds true for our neighbors in context here, Paul is really focusing upon our fellow saints, how we speak to each other. And this is how you counsel one another. You know, prior to the shutdown, we had been going through biblical counseling in the evenings. And what I was trying to show you is that the Bible, if you simply obey the Bible, if you share the truth of the Scriptures with each other, you are counseling each other according to God's truth. And there is no better way to counsel one another. We speak the truth of God's Word to each other. When someone is struggling, you help bring comfort, but you also help bring the truth of God and His love for that person. When that person is ready to really spiritually figure out what's going on around them, you help bring them to the truth of scriptures. Remind that person of the spiritual war that we're in. Remind that person of the struggles that we're going to have in this life. Jesus even said in John 15, 18, that if the world hated him, guess what? They're going to hate you also. And so that is the truth that we operate by. And not only that, but in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, Paul says this, Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Walk as children of light. And verse 9, it says this, For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And so the fruit of our walk with Christ. 
the fruit of our salvation, meaning once we have been saved and we are living according to Christ, we are walking after the example of Christ, we are following what Scripture calls us to follow. That the fruit, that the outcome that people should be able to observe in our life is truth. They should be able to see truth coming forth from us. Now, they may not, and as unbelievers, they're not going to fully understand that truth. For instance, I'm looking out at the congregation. I'm so encouraged that so many of you showed up in person. And I understand that there are reasons why people are still online at home, so I'm not condemning you guys. But what I'm saying is this, is that you guys are here because you understand how essential church is. It doesn't matter what the state tells us. It doesn't matter what the government tells us. We understand from Scripture that church is essential. And nothing that Gavin Newsom says, nothing that any government authority can say is going to convince me otherwise because I know the truth. We come together to worship God together. We come together in order to encourage one another. We come together to be able to sing songs and praise of thanksgiving. We come together to pray. We come together to hear God's truth being taught and applied into our lives. And so we understand this truth, and truth is part of the fruit of our existence, even if the unbelieving world may not fully understand that truth. Because what they need to be able to see is that your walk is legitimate, that your walk actually means something to you. I've seen some churches, okay, there are some churches on the East Coast, some of them from big-name pastors, who have already committed to keeping church closed all the way through the end of the year. Now, some of those churches have encouraged people to participate in person in Black Lives Matter rallies, but they do not meet on Sundays for church. And can I tell you, in my opinion, that is not the fruit of truth, because you're saying that a secular rally, a secular movement is more important than our need to come together and worship God. So that is not truth. The fruit of our walk, the fruit of being children of light is that we walk according to truth. And then, of course, that brings us back to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14, that we are to gird our loins with truth. Our first step of being prepared is to gird our loins with truth. And this is, I say this over and over again, this is foundational because everything that we read from Scripture is truth. I've taken you through passages that specifically mention truth, but everything that you learn from Scripture is truth. Everything that you read from the letters of Paul to the churches is truth. Everything you learn from the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel accounts is truth. Everything we read about the history of the church, how it started in the book of Acts, how it grew in all the ways that the disciples and the apostles went about sharing the truth, that is truth. We go back to the Old Testament and see how God operated with Israel, that is truth. So truth is foundational, and to gird your minds with truth is to focus always on what is true and what is not true. It means that you are constantly being discerning about what you hear and whether you believe what you hear or not. Recently, and this has been a regular thing, and I think it will always be existent during the church age until our Lord Jesus Christ returns, there are a lot of people in the world who call themselves prophets. There are a lot of people in the world who have dreams and visions, and they'll upload YouTube videos and share those dreams and visions with you. And on a number of occasions, I see them coming to me asking me what I think. And I will tell you this, that the scriptures tell us that everything that we need for life and godliness can be found in His Word. 
And if someone claims to be a prophet, they might have some information that may end up actually being true. But I will tell you this, it is actually not a necessity for us to be able to obey the will of God. Because everything we need to be able to obey the will of God, God has already revealed in His perfect wisdom and omniscience. Omniscience meaning He is all-knowing. And so I can tell you this, just so you understand my thinking, whenever I hear, well, this prophet had a vision that said this, immediately in my mind, I'm already thinking you can dismiss it. And every time I've actually taken the time to actually listen to it, uh, it's usually two, three minutes into it, and I already realize that there are, there are things in there that disqualify what he's saying. Beloved, let me say this. If you have one person that chases after every dream and vision they hear from so-called prophets, and you have another person who ignores all the dreams and visions and just focuses on God's Word, let me tell you, the person who focuses on God's Word will be infinitely better and more prepared for the spiritual warfare than the person who chases after dreams and visions. You don't need to do that. Focus upon the truth of God's Word. And so we have taken a look at truth in the book of Ephesians. Now we're going to look at truth in the other scriptures. And obviously this is, I can't go through every single verse that mentions truth. We would be here all week. But just a few verses that pop to mind. Well, actually a lot of verses that pop to mind. John chapter 8, verses 31 to 32, we are reminded of our Lord Jesus Christ as he is addressing the Jews who did not believe in him in reference to the disciples who did. He says this, verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. So recognize this. Jesus said, if you continue in my word. In other words, if you follow what I say, if you recognize what I say as truth, if you follow, then you are truly disciples. So the fruit of a disciple, the mark of a disciple is someone who follows in the words of Jesus Christ. And verse 32, and he says this, and you will know the truth and the truth will what? make you free. You will not be hindered by falsehood. You will not be hindered by the schemes of Satan. The truth will set you free. And then, of course, we know in John chapter 14, verse 6, John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says this to his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus doesn't say that I know the truth. Jesus doesn't simply say that I speak the truth. Jesus says here, I am the truth. No one comes to the Father except through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then later in chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer. And for his disciples, he says this in verse 17, sanctify them in what? The truth. Your word is truth. And so we see just in these two verses, truth is what saves us, and truth is what sanctifies us. And when I say sanctify, I mean it makes us more holy. It makes us grow. It makes us more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what your life should be characterized by. As you continue to walk with the Lord, as you continue to grow in your knowledge of the Scriptures, you should be growing in your knowledge of His Word, and that growth in the knowledge of His Word should translate into more faithful actions in your life in obedience to God and Jesus Christ. That's not too hard, is it? I mean, that's pretty simple. Now, the hard part is actually doing it. That's the hard part. But let's take a look at some other verses. 
In Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 and 15, this is going back to the Old Testament. Joshua was the one that led Israel into the promised land. And at the end of the book of Joshua, this is the last chapter of Joshua, he says this to the elders of Israel. He says, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. Serve the Lord in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Very well-known verse. Many of you have this verse in your home. We have it in our home. We will serve the Lord. But that speech starts off with Joshua's call to serve the Lord in sincerity and truth. This is to say to serve the Lord in your heart and to serve the Lord according to what you know is true. You see, we can serve the Lord in our heart, but if we don't do it according to any truth, then we're worshiping a false god. We're simply worshiping a false god. Or if you flip it around, if you serve the Lord according to what you know is true, but you don't do it from your heart, then you're really a legalist. You're shallow. You're just you're, you're giving service on the outside, but inside you're like full of dead men's bones. The idea is both that we worship the Lord in both sincerity and truth. And Jesus hits up on a very similar concept in John chapter 4, verses 22 to 24. This is Jesus when he met the Samaritan woman at the well. Remember that? He meets the Samaritan woman at the well, and he says in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. In other words, they don't worship according to truth. But we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. That means according to the inside and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So even in that conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, I would argue the greatest truth that Jesus hits up upon is that the true worshipers of God are worshipers in spirit and truth. Worshipers in spirit and truth. Paul, as he's talking about his fellow Israelites, in Romans chapter 10, he talks about his fellow Israelites who have not accepted that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. They have not confessed Him as their Lord. He says, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for them, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. That is an excitement, a passion. They have a passion for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. And you know what? If they continue that way, they will burn in hell for all eternity. Truth matters. Truth is critical. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, Paul says this, and this is one of the ways that we can equip ourselves. Not only reading the Bible, not only reading and understanding and hearing messages, but verse 8, he says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And notice, just like the armor of God, Paul's first focus is truth. Dwell on what is true. Meditate upon the truth of God's Word. Verse 9, he says, Things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. 
not only know and hear the truth, but dwell on the truth and practice the truth. And Paul says the God of peace will be with you. And then one more verse to share before we get to the final section. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. Paul says this, he's writing to Timothy, and of course, 2 Timothy, we know that is his last letter that we have from Paul in the Bible. We know that Paul expected to die as he was writing this letter, so this letter was very much like a last will and testament. Verse 24, the Lord's bondservant, and in Greek the word is doulos, so it's really the Lord's slave. The Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. Able to teach, that is talking about the transferal of truth. But patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance. Your salvation came with repentance. Repentance means you turned away from your former manner of life. You turned towards God. You committed yourself to not walking the way you once walked. So it says here, if God may grant them repentance in reference to unbelievers, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. That is the same truth that we saw in Ephesians, isn't it? When Ephesians chapter 2 said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked after the course of the world and the prince of the power of the air. And until God rescued you, until God saved you, you were doing Satan's will. And so Paul's instructions to Timothy here that as a servant, as a slave of the Lord, you should teach and pray that God would grant the people who are hearing repentance so that they may come to a knowledge of the truth and no longer be held captive by the devil. Isn't it amazing how much scripture ties together? Isn't it amazing that the more you know Scripture, the more perfect it aligns with itself across multiple letters, across multiple writers? And so we see truth being emphasized throughout all of Scripture. Indeed, all of Scripture is truth. Jesus Christ is truth. The gospel is truth. Our sanctification, we are to be sanctified by truth. So everything that we do has to be in accordance with truth. And in terms of applying truth into our lives, that brings us into the fourth section. We first looked at that phrase, to gird up your loins with truth, and then we looked at truth as it was expressed in Ephesians, and then truth in the other scriptures, and now we're going to think about how to apply truth in our lives. Let me take you back to an earlier verse that we had just read, but let me emphasize it once again, because this specifically pertains to us within the church. Because see here, with us within the church, your role within the church is not simply just to show up to service on Sundays. Your role is not to sing a few songs, hear a message, and then to go home. Your role is to take an active part of the church, to do the one another's, to help build one another up. And in fact, Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13, he gives this purpose very clearly. He talks about the fact that Jesus Christ gave to the church certain people with certain gifts. Look at verse 11. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. These are all different positions given to the church. But they're given to the church with this purpose. Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints. And who are the saints? It's all of you. Everyone who has been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone who has put their faith into Jesus Christ. Everyone who has repented and follow as a disciple of Jesus Christ is a saint. And so the purpose of all these positions given to the church 
is so that you would be equipped, so that you would be prepared. But prepared for what? For the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. You have been called by Christ into a church so that you can help build up that church. We are here together. We hear the word. We engage in prayer. We sing these songs. We fellowship so that we can build one another up, so that we can build the church up. And that is my hope for every true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that that church is continuing to grow, continuing to mature, but it doesn't mature mystically on its own. It matures through the actions of its members. And that's why for so many people who call themselves Christian but stay home and never engage in a church, never participate in a church, I meet so many Christians who say, yeah, I'm I'm a believer. I believe in Jesus Christ, but I have no interest in going to a church. You know what I call that? Biblically, I call that a theological contradiction. There is no such thing in the Bible as a Christian who is not a part of a church. It doesn't even open up that possibility. The idea is that you have been saved into the church and that you are engaging with the church. You are being equipped for the work of service to the building up of that body of Christ. And verse 13 says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Part of the truth is for us to grow in our knowledge of the Son of God. And as we grow in that knowledge, we grow in terms of how we are to walk. And then going on in verse 14, he says, as a result, so as a result of all that equipping, as a result of you helping to build up the body of Christ, being a part of a church, As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. And one of the ways that Satan attacks us, you remember the schemes of Satan that I taught two weeks ago. The schemes of Satan include the fact that he is dressed as an angel of light. He often works, he often attacks from the inside. Paul had even warned the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 that savage wolves are going to arise from among you. We are constantly under attack, and it's not just the outside world. It is also the inside world. But the idea of being mature is that we are no longer children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, because Beloved, we are surrounded, not just in a secular sense, but we are surrounded by bad teaching within the church that is seeking to throw you off course. And then verse 15 says, But speaking the truth in love, that is to be characteristic of our walk. We are speaking the truth in love. Now let me give you some examples of how Paul corrected falsehood with truth. Because if you look at the life of Paul, if you look at his epistles, you will see just how critical truth is even if he doesn't mention the word truth. Paul emphasized that circumcision does not save. That was a big deal with the early church, especially Gentiles who were saved. Acts chapter 15, Paul has to go before a Jerusalem council that includes Peter and James and a number of other people to explain how Gentiles have been saved without circumcision. And so he had to spend a lot of time correcting the false belief that you needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. In fact, that may sound like a trivial matter, but the idea that you need to be circumcised in order to be saved, that's what led Paul to write the book of Galatians. When in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he says, If anyone, even an angel from heaven, were to descend on earth and give you a gospel contrary to one we gave you, that person is to be accursed. 
And he says that twice. He says, if anyone has given you a false gospel, a gospel different than the ones that you have heard from me, that person is to be accursed. In other words, that person is to be condemned. And he goes on to talk about how circumcision does not save. Your works do not save. What you do physically does not save. It is the work of our Lord Jesus Christ that saves. And our faith in Him. And I had mentioned Acts chapter 20. Paul warned the elders in Ephesus about false teachers, about savage wolves. And there are warnings of false teachers all throughout the Bible to beware of false teachers. And Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 7 verses 15 to 20 says, you shall know false prophets by their fruit. You will know false teachers just by what they're teaching if you know the word of God. Paul had to emphasize to the church in Corinth the importance of the resurrection. You know what they were saying in Corinth? Leading up to the writing of the letter to Corinth, the people in Corinth were thinking that there is no resurrection. There is no resurrection. And they're calling themselves Christians. And Paul had to tell them, look, if there is no resurrection, then our faith is worthless. He had to help them see just how important the resurrection really is. And so he was using truth to correct falsehoods. And we must do the same. Our thoughts, our ideas, our beliefs, our theology, our understanding of what the Bible says, we must constantly put it to the test against Scripture. And Paul even warned that Satan operates within the church, and I had talked about that just a moment ago. Let me give you some examples of worldly falsehoods. These are just some very simple examples. I just thought of these off the top of my head, but these are examples of how we can watch our speech, watch our actions to really discern whether we are operating according to God's truth. There is an emphasis in this world upon positive thinking and being loving. Think positive. Just be loving. Wherever you go, just think positive thoughts and be loving. You know where that comes from? That comes from psychology. That comes from worldly wisdom that seeks to show you how you can live your best life now without the scriptures. Now, I'm not saying as a Christian that there aren't benefits to being positive and being loving. We know the scriptures emphasize love. The scriptures emphasize the need for us to love one another. But I would say even better than positive thinking is godly thinking. You see, let me give you an example. Positive thinking is this idea that if you think positive, positive things will happen, right? That's what positive thinking is. Think positive, positive things will happen. You know what the scriptures say? You know what the scripture says about Job? Job was the most righteous man on earth, and what happened? Satan afflicted him, took everything that he had, took his family, only left his wife, and his wife asked Job to go ahead and curse God and die. And in that book, what we see is that Job was not afflicted by Satan because of something that he did wrong. He was afflicted by Satan because of everything that he did right. He was the most righteous man on earth. The Lord even says that to Satan before giving him permission to go after Job. Even the letter of 1 Peter chapter 1, when you look at that letter of 1 Peter, Peter talks about the trials and the afflictions that we can rejoice even in our afflictions knowing that those trials are refining our faith. You see the difference? You see, positive thinking, when you go through trials, you're going to think, well, that was useless. But godly thinking sees those trials and processes them the right way. I could look at this world right now and say that, you know what? As much as we may dislike the decisions of our governor, 
if you dislike what the president is doing or even the prior president, Barack Obama. I can say that for each one of those leaders. I can say without a doubt that God has used them. God has used them. God is using our governor even now. Now, I'm not saying that our governor is a godly man. Far from it. But God uses the wicked in order to help purge the righteous, to help us grow in our faith, to help us grow in our trust and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father. Here's another example. Karma. Throw that word around and we'll say things like, oh, what goes around comes around. That comes from Hinduistic beliefs. This idea that if someone does something bad, it's going to come back around and catch up to them. Well, we know that's ultimately true, but it may not be true until that person stands in judgment before God. But we know without a shadow of a doubt that in this life, there are a lot of wicked people that live very prosperous lives. And they do so to their own condemnation if they do so in rebellion and in ignorance of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. This idea of subjective truth. What is subjective truth? Subjective truth is this idea when people say, well, everyone has their own truth. Every, I have my truth. You have your truth. We do what we want in accordance to what's true for each one of us. And so sometimes people will say, well, there is no absolute truth. And I've had people tell me that. They will tell me, there is no absolute truth, which is kind of funny because that's an absolute statement. By saying there is no absolute truth, my question back is, are you sure about that? Because you just made an absolute truth statement. So you've just contradicted yourself with that statement itself. But sometimes people will say there is no absolute truth. That truth is different from person to person. We each have our own truth. And you've got to be careful of buying into that kind of thinking. Because that is the temptation of this day. That is what is behind the LGBTQ movement. The idea that, well, I, I know I was born this way, but I feel this way. And that is the whole sex ed curriculum that's being pushed down into our schools, trying to encourage children to ignore the truth of who they are biologically in order to pursue something that they are not. We have to be careful about this idea of subjective truth. Truth is objective, meaning that we have no effect on what the truth is. The truth is the truth, whether we believe it or not. Jesus Christ is Lord, whether you confess it or not. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 talks about how every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that He is Lord according to the glory, to the glory of God the Father. And so one thing I often tell people is that whether you believe Jesus, whether you confess Him or not, it doesn't change who He is. He is still the King, and He is still coming back. And you will be judged for what you do with this knowledge of Jesus Christ. We have to be careful of thinking that salvation is based upon some perceived goodness that we see in other people. We can often say, well, that person's a good person. I, I, I know God's going to find a way to save that person. That betrays the gospel. You understand that? Because God doesn't save based upon your works. God doesn't save based upon what you are in this world. God saves based upon His Son, Jesus Christ, and what you do with Jesus Christ. And so we need to be careful of looking at people in the world and thinking, oh, yeah, that, that person, I know God's going to show him favor because he's a good person. It's this idea that there are multiple paths of salvation. Well, he's not a Christian, but I know that he's very faithful in his own religion, and that religion is, is just another way of worshiping God. This idea of universalism, that is a falsehood from Satan. Thinking that God needs our wisdom or innovation, and this is especially true in the church. 
There are a lot of church leaders that say, well, you know what, I know what the Bible says, but we need to be more hip than that. We need to be more current. There are churches in America that's playing pop music as a part of their worship services. Hip-hop, pop music, they are seeking to just entertain the audience with comedy routines and entertainment routines, bringing dancers on the stage and this and that, and they'll give you a message that's about five to ten minutes long that is really full of man's wisdom rather than the truth of God. And they do that on the basis that, well, this is what we need in order to bring people to the church. There are articles that are written in a magazine called Christianity Today, which is not very Christian, by the way, so I'd beware of that magazine. But there have been articles written in that magazine that talk about how our biblical approach to Christianity is driving young people away from the church. Well, the truth is the truth. Who are we to say that we know better than God? And Paul even told Timothy that there will come a time when people will seek after teachers to tickle their own ears. If people are leaving the church because they don't like the truth, well, guess what? It's because the world hates the truth. So we must stick to God's word and what he tells us. And we must be careful about regarding spiritual authorities who are outside the church. And one very simple example is the Pope. Some of you guys, you listen to the Pope and think that he has some sort of spiritual wisdom that you need to listen to. No. What you need to listen to is the Word of God. You need to listen to faithful preachers of the Word. You don't need to listen to a leader of a, one of the largest false religious systems in the world that teaches your salvation is both by faith as well as works. So this is just some examples in the world of how we operate with truth, how we gird up our loins with truth. And if you're here this morning, you have heard me share the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let me just encourage you that there is no way that you can ever justify yourself before a holy God. The only way for you to have eternal life, the only way that you will be in heaven for all eternity following this life is if you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you repent of your sins and confess Him as Lord, that means to put aside everything that you've done in your prior life and make that determination now to follow Christ and Christ alone. That is how salvation comes. It is that faith that you will put into Jesus Christ that saves. And you can do that right now. It doesn't require any special works from you. It doesn't look at your past performance. It only looks at what you understand to be true about the Lord Jesus Christ here and now. And if you want to talk to someone, you're free to come by the church at any time. Send us an email. Contact the office. If you're here this morning, you can come talk to me after the service. But do not delay putting your faith into the Lord Jesus Christ because this, my friend, is the only way to heaven. Jesus Christ says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And for the rest of us, gird up your loins with truth. Operate in this world according to truth. And recognize that while the world may try to throw you off, in fact, recognize that the world will try to throw you off. But no matter how hard they try, we can stand firm in the battle if we gird up our loins with truth and always discern what is the truth of God and what are the schemes of man and Satan. Let us pray.